1: Welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Jonathan Shandell, associate professor and co-director of the theater arts program at Arcadia University in Pennsylvania. We will be in discussion about his recently published book, The American Negro Theater and the Long Civil Rights Era, published by our friends at the University of Iowa Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Shandell. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Adam.
1: No, I'm definitely excited to uh, to have you on the program today. Um, and 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 your book really caught my eye um, greatly because I thought, you know, I'm, I'm I have a interest, you know, in in theater, and and it's one of those things that um, it's like one of those oh. I like, uh, things I wish when I was younger I would have gotten into, um, and I recently uh, had on the program, uh, or I recently read rather, um, looking for Lorraine, the the new uh, uh, third person biography of Lorraine Hansberry, and so it, I read that before your book, and so it kind of reengaged my 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 mind on, on theater. So um, I was
0: definitely excited to uh,
1: to to have you agree to come on the program. we we're, we're definitely excited.
0: Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And uh, the story of African American theater history, particularly in the period immediately preceding Lorraine Hansberry, is one that just hasn't been told quite as much as some other periods, particularly after Hansberry. And um, so I'm hoping that my book helps kind of fill in an area that uh, there's been less research and less scholarship um, around.
1: Right, and and can you tell us a bit about um, the factors? You know, you mentioned the the scholarly uh, silence on it a bit, but what what actual factors brought you into uh, working on a project like this?
0: Well, I discovered the history of the American Negro Theater when I was a doctoral student, and I somehow stumbled upon the remarkable history of this theater and realized that that there had been very little published on it. Uh, there was one other dissertation that had been written decades before I was uh, looking for a dissertation topic and uh, it, that hadn't made it to a book. And there were some scattered articles here and there and mentions of the theater's history in the biographies and autobiographies of many of the artists who went through there. Uh, but the story really caught my attention. And it also was convenient because I was um, hoping to find a topic where I could live in Manhattan in New York and do research, and so I discovered the, the theater's archives and a lot of archival material at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture um, at, in the New York Public Library, and uh, it made for a good kind of um, coming together of different, different factors, an interesting story and research that I could get access to, and a story that really I felt needed to be told
1: and and that you know living being able to live in new york you know that's living in manhattan ain't too bad so you know i i i can definitely see why that would be a good bit to do um and 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 also the theater community obviously being in that area too i think you know i think it's always pretty cool that you know when you when you do research you also have like a community around it that also kind of feeds into i think you know the intellectual uh, ecosystem um, is, as well. And I guess it kind of sounds like that in, in your case, too. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. I, I had an interest in African-American theater. And so there's a, a short section at the end of the book about the classical theater of Harlem. Uh, and I was actually seeing a lot of those productions as I was doing the research and also doing The research that I was doing was in the Schomburg Center, which was formerly the Harlem Library, which is actually the building where this theater was founded. So there were a lot of uh, factors kind of coming together that actually made it come alive for me and feel like it wasn't just a an abstract project but something that where I could really kind of see uh tangibly the 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 places and and the the artists and the uh and the personalities that I was that I was looking into and that was really exciting as well mm.
1: and can you also uh where did you do your graduate work as well
0: Yale School of Drama. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a graduate of the of the the MFA and DFA program of the dramaturgy and dramatic criticism at Yale.
1: Ah, oh, alrighty, alrighty, man. So 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 yeah, you 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 definitely got that. You you definitely this is not just a fly off the wall interest in
0: that case. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um. And and the way that that program is structured is that. Uh, one a doctoral candidate can, um, if if he chooses, which I did, do your research elsewhere. You don't have to live in New Haven per se to to finish finish up your research and your writing. So I was able to be in New York, uh, which is not far away, and I could take the train up there to meet with my advisors and uh, work remotely. So it was uh, a good topic in that regard, and that I, in that I was able to 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 live in the city that I was already living in and as I said, kind of follow the history uh, where it happened, which was, which was exciting.
1: Very well, very well. Um, and so getting uh, into the book, um, you spoke uh, when I brought up uh, Lorraine Hansberry about, you know, the, this period really beginning um, in the precursor times to uh, Hansberry um, and, and obviously Raisin in the Sun. Um, so can you, can you uh, uh, shape, uh the book for us a bit can you talk to us about um how you structure your, your your book
0: absolutely so my the first half of the book tells the story of the american negro theater which existed in harlem from 1940 to 1949 and um was sort of short-lived in terms of its lifespan there but my interest in the theater wasn't just during those 10 years that it existed, nine or 10 years, but also thinking about its cultural legacy beyond that time. And so how the work that this theater did and the impact that it had on culture lived beyond into the 1950s and 60s and even uh, echoes of it right up into the present. So telling the, the story of what this theater's work was all about during its lifespan was one part of the project and that makes the first half of the book. And then thinking about how the artists who got their start there and who got their training there and then went on to kind of shape American culture in the decades that followed and think about the lines of cultural influence was the, is the second half of the project. And that roughly takes the second half of the book.
1: That's exceptional. Um, can you, and can you also speak to us about, um, the, particular historical um, actors and actresses, I guess, pun intended in this case, um, uh, that, that that you deal with as well? Because I, I really think that it's so, so interesting uh, how a lot of your theater folk were also the people
0: that were also on the screen. Definitely, definitely. So... What what the American Negro Theater has come to be most known for is as a sort of a launching pad for actors and actresses who went on to become very famous in commercial American entertainment. And so there's this list of very kind of prestigious artists who were there as young actors and actresses and got their training and then went on to be very famous and successful Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, Ruby Dee, um, and a few others as well, and uh, Frederick O'Neill, and so partly I wanted to investigate that story and sort of find out what was it about this theater, what kind of training it offered, and what sort of what sort of work experience these actors got that positioned them well to go on and um, and pursue those opportunities and then become famous. And for some, it was in theater and then also uh, on the screen as well, as Hollywood started to slowly and um, problematically become kind of more available to, to black actors. So what I found is that there really is a continuity, there really is a, um, a kind of straight line that you can draw between the approach that that the theater company took to the stage, and then some of the film work, uh, particularly early in their careers for actors like Sidney Poitier and Frederick O'Neill. I spent a long time thinking I was going to have a chapter on Harry Belafonte, but it didn't quite come together in the way that I wanted. And there's an excellent uh, biography about Belafonte's early career, which I felt I didn't really have anything to add to. So I sort of left that chapter out but then also um, so another person who, who went through the theater as an actress and actually had some success as an actress, but then shifted to playwriting and had her, most of her influence mm-hmm. as a playwright is Alice Childress. So uh, I was very con- th- very focused on thinking about what the continuity is between what these prestigious artists did early in their career on the stage in Harlem, and then how that prepared them for the wider influence that they had um, once that theater collapsed, but that they matured as uh in, in, American in, culture, in American culture,
1: um, you know, the, the role of popular culture and the role of, of artistic expression um, in, in, in notions of, of what America is. Right. So, so when you think about, um, you know, you know, the, Frederick uh, uh Turner's uh frontier thesis though that's in the you know mid uh, uh I guess early to mid uh 19th century obviously it still spells importantly into kind of you know the your John Wayne um Hollywood uh you know cowboys and indians kind of bit and 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 it also and the other way for african americans theater and artistic expressions are ones of showing like who, who we are or almost to a certain degree showing our, our, our quote unquote perfect self. Um, Cause I wrote a paper. um, I wrote a seminar paper for a film and historical representation course um, in, in, in my master's program at Simmons college. And so one of them, one of the paper, one of the papers I actually wrote was actually on Oscar Michaud. Um, and it kind of like his thoughts about black, um, the 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 b- different narratives of of racial uplift, um, and to me that to a certain degree connects back to your introductory uh, uh chapter about you know beyond an integrationist or separatist binary. Um, can can you tell us a bit about why you chose that particular um uh, chapter title? I, I found it uh, pretty
0: intriguing. Uh, sure, sure. Well. It really sprang out of basic fundamental thinking that I did as I started writing as to exactly what kind of story I was going to tell, exactly how I was going to position uh, the legacy of the American Negro Theater and then of the artists who were associated with it. One of the ways, and I mentioned this a little bit, one of the ways that the American Negro Theater is known is for its influence on commercial culture. So these people who went on to become kind of commercial celebrities, Poitiers and Belafonte and others. Uh, So there's a story that's told that positions the theater as a kind of a feeder of commercial entertainment. And while that's true to a certain extent, uh, it can also be turned around to be a criticism of the ANT, that they were just commercially minded, that they were perhaps just interested more in garnering the approval of white audiences and white commercial interests, rather than in telling what might be seen as a more authentic artistic vision of African American life, and there were those criticisms levied against the theater, particularly in the in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, um, Harold Cruz's book, "The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual," he 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 goes on and on about this. He really sort of faults the American Negro theater for being too commercially minded, for betraying sort of working class audiences in Harlem, and for just shooting for commercial success. So, what I wanted to try to do was avoid falling into the trap either of just praising the ANT for its commercial achievements, which I think is an incomplete story and, or also for bashing them for being sellouts, which I think there's also some foundation for that, but also is an incomplete story. And so what I settled on, which is something that my um, advisor, David Krasner <laughs> steered me towards, and it took me a long time to figure out what exactly he was trying to help me discover, but I eventually did, uh, was that um Uh, Nicole Nicole Singh's book, Black as a Country, kind of provides this paradigm of getting beyond just the question of, are you integrationist or separatist, and that you can look at the long civil rights era as a period where a variety of tactics and a variety of points of view and a variety of strategies are employed, uh, that African-Americans used culturally, politically, and historically to uh, pursue their interests. And so if I took that paradigm and, and reread the theater's history from that point of view, it would tell a more complete picture, and it would allow me to not be put into a, um, write myself into a corner where I'm just either labeling them as uh, a commercial theater or labeling them as sellouts and would be able to tell the history in a more nuanced way. So that was the paradigm that I that I really went with as the primary critical lens, and it uh, ended up really becoming kind of the through line for both retelling the theater's history and the works that they produced and the achievements they had, and then looking again at the legacies of actors like Cindy Poitier and Frederick O'Neill, who also have come upon some criticism for being Hollywood sellouts. Um, And while I think some of that criticism is valid, of course, uh, particularly in the case of Poitiers, that's been sort of the the primary line of um, criticism against him. I also felt that there was another story there that could be told about particularly some of his early work in film and how uh, he was pursuing agenda, an agenda that, that went beyond just commercialism and beyond just, uh, catering to white audiences. So that critical lens allowed me the flexibility to kind of think about all of this work in a, in a variety of ways and to be able to tell what I hope is a, a complete and nuanced story about this period in cultural and
1: history. It's so, it's so wild that you mentioned the, 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 the perception Of Sidney Poitier, um, especially, you know, once he became, you know, a commercial kind of who's coming to dinner style figure. (laughs) Um, And I think it's a great way to connect back to 100 years, uh, back to the 19th century, where, you know, more of my Foray historically is to somebody like Frederick Douglass. And so I'm actually interviewing David Blight um about his new biography of Frederick Douglass. And I think it's appropriate to bring this up because one of the um central themes of his text is actually that um, um I think the let me see the the connection to really is to it that what happens when you are on the fringe, kind of from from your beginning, right? So where you're you might be deemed more radical in your expressions and and also like the kind of roles, I guess. In in the case of Poitiers he would he was taken and and where he wouldn't have become thought of as a sellout. But then once he kind of you know becomes mainstream, that kind of bit comes on to where he's more centralized, right? So what happens when you go from being an outsider to an insider? Um, you know, and, and so, you know, I, I think that that's a, I think, I think that's an interesting, uh, a juxtaposition and, and really parallel, uh, between the centuries too, because both, you know, were in their day, um, the one, one of, if not the leading members of, of, of the, of the black community, uh, the African-American community, uh, though, uh, uh Pote is from the Bahamas, but, um, but but yeah, I think I think that you know that that kind of representation is, is there, you know, um, and it, and it really makes me think a bit about you know Sydney Portier as as a as such an intriguing figure historically.
0: Yeah, and one of my favorite pieces of research for that chapter and really for the whole book was actually an essay that James Baldwin wrote about. Sidney Poitier and they, and they were friendly and they knew each other and they interacted a little bit. Um, but it was in, in essence, Baldwin's defense of Poitier. Once he was coming under attack for being, um, the magic Negro and, you know, taking all these like sort of emasculated and disempowered roles. And Baldwin wrote this defense of him, which basically, um, uh, Echoed or or revisited some of those criticisms, I should say, and said that uh, rediscovered some of Poitier's earlier films that weren't as commercially famous and found a kind of a different presence on screen for him. And then also said that ultimately he had the tragedy of, of Poitier's career was that he had become so absorbed by a system that everybody knew had to change. And so that was kind of the the difficult position that he was in, was that he was trying to effect change from the inside of a ultimately kind of corrupt Hollywood culture. And is a very kind of sympathetic way of reading Poitier, but I wanted to to take up some of what Baldwin was saying to make the argument that even though those... Even though those attacks on Poitier are somewhat valid, given how problematic many of his roles on screen were, that there's still a different side to the story, that there's still a different kind of a presence and perhaps maybe even a sort of subtle subtextual resistance to the objectification of African Americans on the Hollywood screen that Poitier was, was bringing to his work and that it's more visible earlier in his career, right? When he came out of the American Negro theater and that perhaps over time, he became so kind of accustomed to working commercially in Hollywood that, that, that side of his artistry was lost.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And can you also, you know, I, I think the, the role that, theater and, 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 and the arts, like, I think the role that they play in society is to me, one of the more uh, interesting phenomena. Um And so can, you know, I, I thought that your chapter um, black selfhood and interracial communion in the drama of Alice uh, Childress was really, excuse me, um, was, was pretty Interesting to me, because when I think about, you know, going back to like the slave narratives and and, and black uh, and the, the black tradition, um, you know, I, I think about, you know, how people craft themselves, you know, how people, you know, because effectively like if you're if you're someone who's who's in, in this field, then that means that you are in some ways like taking portions of your life or, you know, other people's lives and, and crafting it onto a particular screen or 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 crafting them for for audiences um and so in a time where black freedom is still not there you know i think that you know those kind of stories are are very important especially when you think about how does that work when you know there has to be an interracial component at some point in it um and so could you kind of speak can you would you be able to speak to that a bit uh if, if you can
0: Sure, sure. Uh, Childress is a, such an interesting figure, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, she was trained as an actress in the American Negro Theater, and she actually achieved success as an actress, and she even got a, um, a Tony Award nomination on Broadway, but the as she went on in her career, she discovered that she was deeply dissatisfied with the types of roles that were available to her as a black woman. And both in racial terms and in gender terms, she felt that she was double stereotyped as a black woman on stage. And she came to understand that if she was going to find artistic fulfillment and be able to kind of express her authentic self, that she would have to actually create the roles and, and write plays that that honored who she felt she was. And so she shifted from acting to playwriting and became a really well-regarded voice on the African-American theater. And, and one of those playwrights that comes before Lorraine Hansberry, who now doesn't quite get as much recognition, doesn't quite get as much study, doesn't quite get as much publication or production, um, but uh, was one of the sort of the precursors to, precursors to Hansberry um, in the decade that, that preceded her. So I was interested in thinking about how Childress's work as an actress with this Harlem Theater Company fueled both her professional acting that she did later and then also her playwriting. And given the interracial character of a lot of the work that the American Negro Theater was doing, uh, it, it led me to focus on the plays that she wrote in the 1950s and early 60s that used interracial casts. So she has another phase of her playwriting later in the 60s and 70s that are all african-american casts and are, are more directly focused on um issues of black identity and black community but earlier in her career she wrote these plays that featured integrated casts and were very much engaged with um interracial relations and um that really drew my attention and so i was trying to figure out how her portrayals of Black identity within an interracial social context could be seen in these various ways associated with the long civil rights era, both as a kind of a defiant political stance for equal rights and for resisting racism and racial oppression on one hand, but also on the other hand as Kind of statements of hope for interracial partnership, interracial communication, interracial intimacy, even. And so the plays reward those readings from different points of view. And that's what I sort of tried to do in the chapter is to say that we don't have to choose in thinking about Childress. Is she either a kind of a, a voice of Black self determination on one hand, or is she a voice of? Um, integrationist politics. On the other hand, her plays are rich enough and uh, layered enough that you can kind of see them uh, fulfilling both of those goals at the same time. And so the plays in, that, that I read in particular, one is called Florence, which is a one-act play she wrote in 1950. Um, and then another is called Trouble in Mind, which was um, a co- commercially successful in New York in the mid fifties, 1956 and 57. It was optioned for Broadway, but never made it to Broadway because she refused to rewrite the play to the satisfaction of the white producers that were going to fund it. And so it never actually made it to the Broadway stage. And then, um, another play, which is probably her most famous and most widely, um, revived play called Wedding Band, which was in the early 60s and is the story of an interracial marriage in the South um, and was actually written and staged and produced in the years leading up to uh, Loving versus Virginia, which was 1967. So this play was actually like sort of taking on the issue while interracial marriage was still illegal throughout the South and in, in, in dozens of states in the United States. So there's both a kind of a defiance of the Um, racial hegemony of the united states in the way that she tells this story but then also by featuring this interracial couple and kind of investing a lot of dignity in their relationship and in their marriage and in the ways that um that these these two characters love each other and try to to be together um there is a kind of a statement of hope that perhaps not only interracial romance but kind of you know Understanding between blacks and whites in a racially divided United States is possible if society will allow it. So um, that that's the ways that I really tried to show her her work, her drama existing across a spectrum of political points of view and strategies for combating um, discrimination and prejudice in the United States in the in the in the mid 20th century
1: you know and and i'm I'm so glad you brought um brought up these points, especially the loving point and you know it's uh was it i think this is the fiftieth year or around the fiftieth year of the decision and, and and you know the the relationships and and the the children um that have been born since then um you know it's an interesting historical tale, but then I also have have recently thought about the role. Of you know, as historians, the role of non-historians in the creation, uh, or in in the, in the articulation of historical stories, um, if, if my idea is right. Um, and can you speak to how the American, um, Negro theater, um, and I actually didn't even have this question planned. It just was on the spot. So, uh, please indulge the, 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 the freestyle here. Um, can you speak to the role <laughs> thanks uh, can you speak to the role that um the the those uh, uh producers uh, of you know the american uh, negro theater um in in how they uh effectively were historians in, in a sense um in in their stories
0: sure sure well and I, and i think this is sort of my interest in theater history and in cultural history more broadly is thinking about not only how cultural narratives plays and you know for for this book and this is sort of new areas to me but thinking about film and tv as well how the how the stories that get told in the united states both reflect the present reality of race relations in the nation and then also perhaps how they help push forward to change the culture and to change society, or at least envision how society might change through the lens of a fictional narrative. So the American Negro theater in the 1940s was certainly creating stories and using narratives in a way that was... um, both reflective of what was happening at the time, and then also potentially forward-looking into how where society might go. So I mentioned Childress's play, "Wedding Band," which is about an interracial romance in the ni- that she wrote in the in the mid '60s. But the A and T staged a play called "The Garden of Time," which was an adaptation of Medea. By um, excuse me, uh, Euripides' pre- tragedy Medea, and it sort of recast the story with uh, in interracial terms, so that Medea was was a was a black character, and Jason, her Greek lover, was was white, and that too was a kind of a meditation not only on interracial romance, but sort of metaphorically on race relations and sort of the possibility for racial progress, and it it keeps the kind of tragic result of the play with um, Medea killing her children and 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 all that uh, from the original but the, again there is this kind of poetic and metaphoric consideration of the fact that uh, how might that story have been avoided how might society have opened up to allow for these people to love each other and respect each other and and, and be together. So that's just one example. Um, more prominent in the history of the ANT and also in the book, which gets a whole chapter, is this uh, play that they produced, which became very successful, called Anna Lucasta. And this was a play that they produced in Harlem that was incredibly successful and was actually picked up by Broadway producers and brought to Broadway and became very successful. It ran for more than two years on Broadway with an all African-American cast, which uh, was kind of groundbreaking at the time and actually is still the record for the longest Broadway run of any play that has an all African-American cast. And This play was sort of remarkable in that it was kind of an early experiment with what we might now call uh, non-traditional casting or colorblind casting. The play tells the story of a family in um, Pennsylvania and their attempt to marry their daughter to a uh, someone who comes up from Alabama with a lot of money, and they want to marry off their daughter, who's kind of the black sheep of the family—no <laughs> pun intended—but um, she is kind of uh, disgraced and, and and working as a prostitute. Um, and they want to marry her off to uh, to, for, to to kind of steal steal the money of this young man who had come up from Alabama. And the way that the story is told is without any reference to racial identity, to race, to, um, to the fact that, to the blackness of the characters. And that might not be so remarkable now if we saw that kind of a story, but in 1944, this was actually quite remarkable that you could have these black actors on stage embodying these characters and not being constantly marked by... Race by racial caricature, by any references to uh, African American culture or history, and it came during World War II in 1944, and it was a comedy, and um, it was incredibly successful. And I try to build an argument in in this chapter that this play, which I find to be kind of a mediocre play at best, but the way that it was kind of envisioning what we might call a kind of a post-racial experience or a kind of a a race blind experience where audiences of all um, points of view could watch a drama of serious characters, well-rounded characters, well-defined characters, just have a kind of a typical comic romance story without a constant reference and a constant obsession with their racial identity and without resorting to kind of obvious caricature and stereotyping was in some sense, a kind of a, a, a gesture of proposing to the nation, what would it look like to view African-Americans outside of the prism of race, right? Outside of the, the, the paradigm of uh, racial hierarchy and the the play's success and commercial success and then it went on and there were actually two different film versions created first with a white cast because Hollywood wasn't ready to make this this story into a feature film with a black cast and that was in the early 50s and then uh, in the late 50s they remade it with an African- American cast with some of the original original cast from from the Broadway production. Um, but that also sort of goes to show that you that the fact that you could take this story and make two different films, one with a white cast and one with a black cast uh, speaks something to an appetite for, viewing characters outside of traditional notions of racial identity and racial hierarchy. And it was very successful, but also the commercial success and the lack of racial content in the play was also something that opened up the ANT and to criticisms that they were selling out, that they were playing to white audiences, that they were aiming for Broadway success and that they weren't um, using their art to give voice to a to to a true authentic black experience so i was really interested in the kind of the tension that surrounded that and the ways that the theater was trying to kind of negotiate that um that complexity in in what they were doing
1: and in, in in the last portion of our interview um you know i'm i'm a- I've been doing, you know, my interviews for about a year now. And so I, I try to, every now and again, try to do something a little different. And so um, would you be able to talk to us a bit about, you know, with with you writing this book, The American Negro Theater and the Long Civil Rights Era, can you tell us a bit about, you know, some of your favorite moments about doing the research for this project?
0: Sure. Sure. One that leaps to mind is has to do with this play, Anna Lukasta, which I was just talking about, which makes the whole chapter. Um, and the history, the textual history of this play is really interesting and complex. It was originally written in the late 30s by a Polish-American writer named Philip Jordan. And he wrote this play and it was uh, had a slightly different title. It was called Anna Lukaska. And the characters were specifically defined as Polish He tried to get this play performed, tried to get it produced, and nobody liked it, nobody wanted it, nobody produced it. It ended up in the hands of the leader of the ANT. His name was Abram Hill, and he read it, and he said, well, obviously, we're not going to produce a play that's about a Polish family, but if we could get the playwright's permission to change... Things And to change the identity of the characters and to do some rewrites, it might work very well. And so they got that permission from Jordan, the original playwright, and they changed it quite a bit. That became problematic because then the play started making money, but Jordan retained the author's credit. And he continued to make the author's royalty, even though his play had really been changed quite a bit by the actors and and the theater into what it was. So there was always a question of how different the play that made it to Broadway and made a lot of money on Broadway was when compared to the original manuscript that uh, Philip Jordan wrote in the late 30s. Um, But nobody had ever been able to actually make that comparison. But through some digging, I actually found the original script in uh, the archives of the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. And they was, it was in some uncatalogued boxes of files from Philip Jordan's agent that had never really been gone through. And so by finding those finding a you know a record in the catalog said that had these uncataloged records and i asked for permission and they let me sort of dig through it and i found this manuscript and it was one of those like lost treasure moments which was very memorable and 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 really gratifying and then i was really able to make that comparison to take the the script that I had and compare it to the original that they started from and, and understand and be able to write about and analyze exactly how that script was changed and understand that the, that original that the white playwright wrote didn't get any interested producers for a commercial production because it wasn't good at all. <laughs> and, um, that it was that it really was the work of the of the ant in improving it and in making it something that people had an interest in so um that came far too late for the the people that actually get get compensated for for their efforts and and there's a whole kind of um commercial history of this where that 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 is distasteful in that the white producers and the white playwright were the ones who really got rich off of this, while the the black artists who were most responsible for this um, really never got fairly compensated. And that kind of fits in quite well with American cultural history writ large in that. Um, f- too often, it's it's uh, whites who who sort of come in and co-opt African American culture and turn it into a commercial project and uh, and 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 make profits off of that, uh, where the original artists kind of remain in obscurity. So it fit within that larger story. But the discovery of that manuscript to to answer your question, your original question um was 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 quite a quite a memorable moment in the research and enabled a different kind of analysis than had ever been done on this. and
1: play. and, and I, I like asking that particular question because I always feel that you know to 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 keep a, a book project going and and to, you know your writing is not always going to be the best on every single day. You're not always going to have those you know moments where you can write. 2000 words in a day or some some wildness like that. Um, but it's those moments in the archive, right, where you find something or that begins the process or, you know, helps you to continue it, um, I think are always important to, to really flesh out, um, especially for those who are going to get this book, because we already know. New Books in African-American Studies, uh listeners always go out and buy the books. So buy this book, y'all. I hope so as well. <laughs> University of Iowa Press, so. first time with you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so with that being said as well, can uh, one one last question, if, if, if you don't mind. Um, if you had the opportunity to have five, three of your historical actors, actresses in front of you for a five-course dinner, for three or for about four hours and you can ask them individually or collectively three questions right three like huge like long deray kind of questions right what would they be
0: wow that is such a great question to ask
1: so as you formulate your thoughts, I was going to say to contextualize it a little more to give you a little more time to think. Um, this question comes really from the thought of if you're going to write, you know, a book that's, you know, 200 or so pages and invest your time and your family's time because you always see families in the acknowledgments to um, that. This is something that is obviously something of, that's largely a part of you. And so they're, obviously not everyone's like Cindy Portier where they're alive. And so, you, so by technicality, you could ask him a question, but not everybody is. Um, so with that being said, you know, I, I think, you know, providing that context is good, too, um, because it, it lets people know that, you know, fantasy is everything. How these characters come into be large times is literally because of daydreaming and fantasies about a different life. And really, that's the crux of what, you know, black life has been for, you know, in, in the Western world for yeah, 500 years. Well, and, and before years I
0: answer so. your question, I will also kind of go back and add on to my previous answer and to say that another joy of doing the research for this book was to work in the archive of Jim Hatch, who's a like sort of legendary historian of African-American theater and he has a private collection of oral histories that he and his students at uh, the City University of New York did uh, interviewing Black artists, actors, writers, etc. that he just sort of Keeps in his loft in Soho, and so a lot of the research was playing his old reel-to-reel tapes and listening to the voices of the very people that I was writing about. And I was actually able to interview some some folks who were who were involved with the American Negro Theater. But I was also able to listen to the voices of those, particularly those who had who had deceased before I started my research, um, because they were recorded on in this oral history collection. And that's a real treat for a historian who, you know, who, who, who doesn't always get the chance to hear the real voice and hear the real turns of phrase um, recorded of the subjects that they study. So in a sense, I already have sat down and listened to the wisdom of these people. But I didn't get to. But I didn't get to ask the questions. So uh, back to your question. Your question. I mean, I suppose one question that I would really want to hear from them would be to hear their own thoughts about the work of the American Negro Theater and how it intersected with and expressed their sense of themselves as African Americans. Um, as I mentioned, one of the kind of historic lines of criticism of the ANT was that it was too integrationist that it was too geared toward white commercial interests and um thus thus did not authentically and fully kind of express an African American point of view i tried to push back against that charge in the way that i think about the theater's history but i would love to hear their response to that question specifically when they were producing this work when they were doing what they were doing in Harlem um, what did they think it meant to them as African Americans what did they think it meant to the Harlem community and how did they see themselves how did they see their their work uh, with respect to uh, racial integrity if I can kind of use that phrase as compared to uh, with respect to its commercial possibilities that's 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 the basic question that I tried my best to answer throughout the book and I would love to know if I got it right
1: all, all phenomenal all phenomenal and, and and like I said I, I like asking that because I, I think it's you know I think it's really cool to just kind of like think about that that kind of thing too and um, eh, because you know you, who knows you may end up having that chance in, in a different life. And, and those kind of possibilities, I think, you know, so you know, those, those are things that keep us coming back to uh, uh, these great books and also to keep writing as well and to keep thinking. Um, And so um, with that being said, with those last two, can you uh, speak to us about um, any of your uh, new projects or future projects um, as well? Because I I know this book is, uh, you know, pretty new and, you know, it's, it's look, look, looking great and looking at it in my room. Uh, but, um, you know, can, can you, could you indulge us in, in telling us about a bit about what's coming up new for
0: you? I wish I had a better answer. At this point I haven't really started another project. I'm I'm very involved in some service work for my for my college and that has prevented me from starting anything new that's uh significant. And so I had this big push to 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 finish this up and and get this out and I haven't yet decided on what the next chapter is. I I think I want to stay in the realm of African-American theater history and stay in the period that I've been working uh, the, the 1940s and 1950s. Again, just because uh, it seems like that's a place where there are stories out there still to be told and where compared to um, what was happening in the '60s, and in compared to the Harlem Renaissance before that, and uh, other periods that are that are more more well researched. That's um, it. Seems like there's a there's a there's a need for that. Um, I did recently learn about this theater that existed in Greenwich Village in the nineteen the early and mid 1950s called the Greenwich Muse Theater. And it also did experiments with uh, racially integrated casting and um, what we might, you know, what we call colorblind casting or uh, non-traditional casting. And uh, part of it was that it was actually run by a woman who was blind. And that seemed like an interesting story uh, to me that might be be worth digging into. And I don't know what's out there. I don't know if there are any archives and I think it only existed for even a shorter period of time, uh, six or seven years, but uh, perhaps there are some materials uh, about them, about this theater, about the plays that they produced and about who this, this, this woman who ran it and her name is even escaping me at the moment. um, And what her um, interest in race on stage was all about. And, uh, I guess what I'm most interested in and want to keep following is the question of American culture before the, the the what we you know traditionally call the civil rights movement and the black power movement really exploded and race came more to the fore of um, American culture and American uh, political discourse. I want to know what role the theater was playing to help um engage the public in questions of racial identity questions of integration questions of uh racial justice perhaps when it was a little bit um below the radar of the mainstream american consciousness that's still where my interest is so um i imagine i'll i'll try to find a project that's somewhere in that zone but i but i don't know what it is yet
1: sounds good sounds good and just know that um you will always have a, a an open uh invitation uh back to new books in african american studies and and you know it's it's always great to 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 really you know get out of my 18th and 19th century um time frame and uh be able to talk to someone who could actually talk to real people it's so profound i just i just don't know how y'all do it like that you could, they can actually talk back to you.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate very much. You're doing this podcast and as a graduate student, it's probably, uh, you probably have a lot of other things to do as well. Uh, but I've been listening to some of the episodes and to be able to highlight the work of scholars and, um, and bring, make those conversations, uh, more visible or more audible, I should say, uh, is, is a great service and I hope you'll continue to do it. Most
1: definitely. It's been, it's been an exceptional year. Um, um, I am just blessed and, and, and honored to be able to have, you know, not only folks from around the the nation, but also around the world, even to be able to to chat with them and for them to to listen in on our conversations. And um, just to let y'all know, if you if, you, if over the last fifty one minutes and fifty one seconds you don't know who the heck we're talking to, we're talking to none other than Dr. Jonathan a uh, professor at uh, Arcadia University in PA about his phenomenal book published by our new friends or at least my new friends at the university of iowa press entitled the american negro theater and the long Civil rights era thank you so much for coming on the program today doctor and uh, we cannot wait to have you on the program once more
0: thank you so much for inviting me i enjoyed it a lot
1: all righty folks chatting live from new books in african-american studies Newark, Delaware, University of Delaware. I am your host, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. I am your host, Adam McNeil, over and out.